Producer Doug here. I just want to talk about Pop Culture Classroom. They are the ones that put on Denver Comic Con, and we want to help support them so that we can keep bringing you all this amazing audio, such as panels and interviews from Denver Comic Con. So let's get right into it. Pop Culture Classroom inspires a love of learning, increases literacy, celebrates diversity, and builds community through the tools of popular culture and the power of self-expression. They envision individuals transformed by the educational power of popular culture who create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities. They provide quality service to kids and communities, respect, inclusive, and diversity, uh, quality of opportunity, alternative approaches to education, and they recognize each person's intrinsic dignity and importance through open communication, responsibility, and honesty. Did I sound like I read that off the website? I absolutely did, because... Well, I did. I want to get everything right for them because they are fantastic. I recommend going to their website and donating just to keep them going. This fantastic program, plus everything to do for the community, uh, literacy, respect, and of course, Denver Comic Con, so we can bring you all of this stellar guests and panels and Q&As and interviews. So remember, go to popcultureclassroom.org, click on the donate, or just take a spin around their website and check it out. And now, on with the show. Thank you. 
set pieces and some really new action. And I take great pains to make sure like it's not another action thing. Um, you just want the character. I think it's, it's more important to make sure that you care about the characters who want to do the action than the narrative of the action itself. Because, you know, the fact that you know, the dinosaur is matrix first came out, you read a screen and they didn't see it in the first thing. You all looked at each other and basically said, well, that's it. They're doing our action stuff now. So well, how do we, you know, how do we compete? Thank <laughs> you. 
it's so um, it's so of its time when it was created. That, you know, that character kind of has Batman's really his his, his motivation is it comes from a really shitty place, which he just which he refuses to leave. Something about that. There's something about that, that early, you know, late, late 30s, early 40s kind of America, what America is, it's not really related. Yeah, but see, he was also a rough and tumble character too back in those early days. Uh, he was he actually was good. He was really good. Um, and that's the kind of Superman I actually wrote. Like a flation. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I like Superman kicking ass. And I caught a lot, sometimes I caught flack on it. We had a scene in Superman Wonder Woman where um, they had Parasite. Locked up, and Superman was tossing him around, and, and you know, and Wonder Woman's like, you know, hey, he's you know, he's in handcuffs. And Superman, so what? I don't care. He's, he's you know, he's, he's, people are going to die, and we need to know this information. And a lot of people, are like, why was he? He was really hurt. He's parasite. You, you care about, and then just starts to show you, you care about this character who's killed hundreds of people, but meanwhile, Superman's tossing him through a few trees, and it's like, so it, it's kind of funny because that, but it, that is how people do still relate to that morality of Superman, and I like writing him with a bit more shadings on that, because I think in today, you have to write him that way. He can't just be a pure, you know, pardon the expression, Boy Scout at this point. So it has to have some, has to have some gray in it, and he has to, you know, he has to kick ass. And not always, uh, you know. Peter, how, how did you feel um, in the movie uh, when he killed Zod? Um, did that bother you, or? It bothered me for the first, you know what, it, it, it bothered me for some reason for that point just the way it was constructed and built towards. Uh, there was something the way it was shot and edited and put together bothered me. Um, but in the end, like, if you, he kills him after, of course, you know, Metropolis, by, especially by a couple of the shots, and that's what I'm talking about in terms of the construction of it, building up to it. Millions are dead already. Dude, you, you should have done that halfway through. <laughs> so it's like, it, that kind of stuff bothers me. So I think that, you know, if he would have done it earlier, they would have constructed that better. I, I could have gone for it, but it was already way too late. And the funny thing I remember, and I still think it's true, when he's, when, when Zod is firing his heat vision towards the family. Spoilers. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they cut away and they don't see what happened. Like, you don't even see Superman save the family. He just snaps Zod's neck. So you don't even see them run away. So there's just some weird editing pieces in that scene that just kind of bothers you know, when he comes out, I love the bit when he comes out afterwards. I'm like, Superman, he saved us. And literally behind them is a barren winter landscape of, of like millions dead. I'm like, who did he save? You six people? I guess on top of that, is there a character that you've written or in drawn that you've pushed a little too far and you've gotten uh, pushed back from either the company or fans and saying you don't know what you're talking about? And it's gonna be Batman and Robin, we had a scene where um, Rob Damien died, spoilers. <laughs> and, uh, Batman was, I had Batman losing it, and we had a meeting about, you know, saying, hey, we gotta push these characters out of some of their comfort zones, and one of the scenes was when Batman ends up kidnapping Frankenstein and putting him on a table, and, and he's still alive, Frankenstein's, you know, obviously undead, and he's, he takes him apart, he's trying to figure out, you know, how, to, how, he's, how he's still alive, because he wants to maybe possibly bring Damien back. So, you know, there's an overhead shot and Frankenstein's in pieces. And then, you know, all of a sudden, um, they were like, whoa, what are you doing? He looks like it's like he's Dr. Mengele, Nazi concentration camp doc. And uh, I was like, this is, this, is what, this is what a father in grief, at this, especially at this character, would be doing right now. And they said, no, this is horrible. He would never do this. And then literally when the trade paperback came out, then Dan Medea was like, you know what, you're right. You should you built it up properly to show him at this where he was in his emotions, so that you understood why he did what he did. And so take that because they put a big blanket over it at the art right before it got printed. And then when the trade paperback came out, they they, they took off that blanket so you could see the body parts of, of Frankenstein. And he was like, "You're right. We asked you to push the character, and you did, but you got cold feet." But no, you did. It was great. You mentioned Catwoman. Are you okay with her marrying Batman? Is that a spoiler? No. Well, they haven't watched 
in a box and never grow. And it's not fair to expect your, the characters to do that, or the writers to tell the same story, you know, with a character who's 70 years old or 100 years old, um, to keep, you know, rehashing the same thing over and over again. You have to be able to, to push the characters. And I think that's why Tom's doing that with Captain Moon Batman, that, that wedding idea of like, and it's very relatable too because many of us have been married, so you can really focus, even though it's Batman and Catwoman get married, it's about what the two of them are going through and all the excitement and the lead up and the planning and, and the logistics that go into that big day. So I think you have to do that for these characters. Otherwise, just go get something from you know, 1975. If you want to read the same story over and over again, they're still being published. You can buy them. <laughs> those boundaries outside of that, and like I said, raising the stakes and making it something different outside of the comfort zone, you know, so it's not the same story, you know, yeah, you want to read the same Frank Castle shooting dudes in the face, uh, you know, there's 400 uh, issues with that, you can find them anywhere, uh, so just trying to do something a little different for a while. I think, too, when you get that kind of extreme response to something that a, a writer has done with a character, an artist has done with a character, what it means is that you've connected with fans on a visceral level. So even though people may hate what you've done with that character, they're still having an emotional reaction to whatever journey you've taken the character on. And, and that's what you want as a writer. You don't want people to just be flipping page to page and then, hey, done, and you don't care. You, whether you love it or you hate it, you still have a reaction and you're going to be like, I hate what she did or I hate what he did. But then you pick it up and you see what happens next because now there's that, that emotional reaction that drives you forward to find out where they're, what they're doing, what this person's doing with your favorite character. And I think you have to have that. Willie Nelson had a quote that said, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're not doing it right. And that's, that's comics right there. It's a little different now too though, instead of being in the back of the letters column, you know, right. saying, you know, Marvel's when you're doing this, it's like how many thousands of people if they don't like something or just you know, the vitriol, you yeah. know, to be a blogger now or a journalist or whatever. And so So you just take off the interview. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Do you find it uh ability to young this because you uh, did more with the is it hard to compete with uh, the big guys, and, and how do you make your comics stand out with through your storytelling? Yeah, we I really lucked out um, with our book is because I remember I went to there was a couple of other smaller independent publishers, and I went to them, and one of them told me that girl books don't sell. My my character sheet's a modern day samurai story, I guess to some level, and uh, and another you know, and I said you know no this is an interesting story. I want to make it a little different. And something hit, and it was weird because 
And we got, I think, unfairly, but we got lumped in with the bad girl thing in the beginning. But, you know, we, uh, uh, it was just all timing. So I, what was cool is I met Brian, I met, so I met Peter so many years ago and, and uh, when he was working at DC. And, and uh, what was fortunate for me is that I became friends with everybody because I was a self-publisher and Terry Moore came out with, with Strangers in Paradise and, and Jeff came out with Bone. So we all had this mini indie explosion after the image boom, you know, in, in 94, 93, 94, 95, a lot of books came out. And then the magazines really, the fans liked that. And you know, I don't know why. Maybe they were it was a, they were responding to maybe some of the mainstream books were getting stagnant, you know. And uh, so that's that's kind of what what helped us out. But of course, like previews and things like that. And that's like with Ron going to Kickstarter and all. I mean, Brian Polito did his Lady Death Kickstarter, and his last one did something like two hundred forty thousand dollars. You know, people raising money because you build up. It's cool because you do build up these great relationship with your fans and a lot of them become friends and, and getting back and when you push a character too much like what happened with me is that I gave my character Anna uh, a love interest and the fans did not like that they didn't respond to that and it's really sexist and I remember doing, watching the Wonder Woman movie and the, the Steve Trevor character and we were watching it and I'm like he's gonna die he has to die there's a lot of fans and, and I called it because it's weird that a lot of male fans it's, it's not like Superman has Lois Lane. They don't necessarily want Wonder Woman to have Steve Trevor. Trevor, you know, it's really, like I said, it's, it's just, I guess, the nature of a male-dominated, you know, fan base since, you know, the 30s and all, but they did not like that. They did not respond well to it. And uh, so, now I'm bringing, and I actually did, I'm sorry to monopolize this, I did a little um, test with, with, I have a, we have nice web pages and stuff with the sheet for ends, and, and I put it out there that my new story is going to take place 20 years after the original story. So now my character Anna is a mother. She has a teenage daughter. Her warrior days are far behind her. Then it all comes back. And I put it out there. What should I do with Peter? And uh, they all wanted him to die. <laughs> so she married. She got married. And she had a, why, why wasn't there any sheet comics for the past 15 years? And my thing was, well, it doesn't have to be. It didn't have to be. She was having a nice life. So I don't want to kill him. So I put him in jail. <laughs> you know what? If they want him to die, keep him around. Because that means he means that means he means something. Oh, really? Really? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. When they want somebody to die, always go back. Scratch your own storylines or take 
something ideas to the powers that be and say, hey, we want to take so and so in this direction or whatever. I was just curious how much of that, because there's a brand they want to maintain, I'm sure. So I was curious, like, what level of direction is given to writers? I mean, I know for myself with Wonder Woman, I was, I just gave him a pitch of what I wanted to do with the character, and Diane Nielsen said to me at San Diego that year, she's yours to do with what you want to do. So treat her like she's yours. And I think as long as you're not stepping on what somebody else is doing, because you have to always do it. Like I talked to Peter, because he was writing the Superman Wonder Woman book at the time. I just wanted to make sure that if I was gonna do something, that it wasn't gonna interfere with what he was doing, or, or, or if he was doing something that I could work in. But and she's still doing it. This is for more for Brian Azzarello and Tony Moore. How is it um, conceptualizing the action for um, the big like Marvel and DC versus something like Walking Dead or uh, Hundred Bullets? There's no superpowers. All right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, you answered it. Technician, you get to watch him you know, just kick the crap out of everybody. Uh, 
Jackie Chan like half the time. He's getting his butt kicked, and that's more fun to watch um, uh, because you're a little more invested. Like, ah, is he gonna pull this out? Like, he might not do so good. Um, and so that's a lot more fun to keep in mind when you're, you know, plotting out your your action and like trying to visualize, you know, how you're gonna get from point A to point B. <coughs> So for me, uh, Superman, the best stories were always whenever he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone who could stand up to him, or when he was pushed over the edge and things got a little out of hand. Uh, we were talking, you were talking a little bit earlier about it, Billy. Um, Mr. Azarello, Mr. Uh, Mr. Moore, you both have very different writing styles, but I'm a big fan of both of you. And I see that in more, you know, in more style, but my takeaway is that the action really drives what's happening in the story, and it seems like you choreograph a lot of it because the action ends up being a part of the story. It really, it really changes and moves the way the story moves. Uh, on the other hand, Mr. Azarello, it seems like the motivations drive what happened in the action. Uh, and, and could you talk a little bit about the difference uh, in those writing styles where, where uh, Mr. Azarello, you said earlier, you just leave it up to the, to the artist, and I fully agree that you know, that's really good. Uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, tell me a lot of things that you've done. Uh, these are really action-driven characters. Um, could you guys discuss a little bit about how how that comes about and how you form uh, the choreography for a scene? Man, I don't think I always do it so well. At least the fight stuff. Um, I kind of I've approached it working on like the. Try and make it realistic, which is like kind of not too. Uh, I'm shooting myself, but you know. Um, but still, only shoots their feet one way. It is. It is like it, it is really getting an artist that you trust, okay? Because and that's what they want to draw anyway. You know, they don't want to draw. So yeah, it's always, uh, it's a means to an end. Um, you know, and then when it comes to like choreographing the action, that's where you get to really cut loose. Um, you know, I got a, a script from Remender one time that said, uh, you know, pages nine through 12 go nuts. And so uh, that was awesome. Um, that's yes. <laughs> I mean, look, the best thing about action scenes is then as a writer, you get to, you're directing it. If you want to go, if, if, if you're an artist, depending on who you're working with too, but usually I like to give some beats, but depending on the artist I'm working with, but if I have a clear vision of an action scene, I will, and I started out writing screenplays and making movies when I was a kid, so I have sort of more of a, you know, I, I approach my scripts from a very visual sense. I kind of almost feel sometimes you could, you know, pull you know, a lot of stuff out and you can still understand, if you have a good artist especially, like it's that old Hitchcock saying, and obviously movies and comics are, are different beasts, but there's there's a little truth to it where if you turn the volume down and you can still understand what's going on, and in a comic I feel that way sometimes too, so if you can still understand the storytelling and you get what's happening, there's a real success there between the writer and the artist. And But you know, 
there's nothing there's nothing greater than being able to put on your uh, John Woo cap on and, and try to kind of figure out a cool action scene to give an artist you know something to draw. Sometimes, you know, these characters have had such long published lives that they can tend to get like over convoluted. And so sometimes the easiest thing to do is just go back to the beginning. What was the core of this character that made a cool idea in the first place? Strip it down to that, and that's where you start your story. Um, you know, the easiest way to see that is what Ennis did with Punisher. He was like, ah, there's too much going on here. Let's just make him a guy with some guns. And that was it. That was the magic assault Punisher again. Um, but, you know, I think that in almost every sense, if you can figure out what is the core of the character that made him a cool idea, then start from there. Um, and, you know, like um, like Ghost Rider, um, you know, had so much weird shit added to him over, you know, the decades. 
almost every time, especially when you're working with these long-term characters, is the, the perfect place to start, at least. But I think, too, it's important to remember that everybody, we all have similar life experiences. We're born, we go to school, um, we go to high school, and, and, but everybody's life experience is significantly different based on your environment and who you are, just your, your personality and your makeup. And every writer up here on this table is significantly different. And we could, you could give us all a basic plot and you would get seven incredibly different, right? Six? Yeah, don't include me. Six incredibly different stories, do you know what I mean? So it's okay sometimes to tell the same story and just give it your spin. And, and because it's a different person telling a similar story, it still feels fresh because you're giving it your own perspective and your own personal take up from that, that experience. It's all in the execution, you know? Um, Doc Ock changing brains with Peter Parker sounds completely stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Slot pulled that off. That was such a well-told and well-executed story, you know? And so it's like, you know, Batman Mary Catwoman, boy. But Tom's pulling it off, you know? It's, it's like compelling read, and it's like he's really doing a great job. So it's, you can come up with anything, as long as you're pulling it. You a different sort of thing. What? As long as you do the hell out of it. Do the hell out of it. So, uh, on that same note, what are some bad ideas that you guys have had that have never come to fruition? <laughs> well, we want to tell you those. <laughs> there are no bad ideas. It's only bad execution. I, I have an idea to do something. Because um, I, I have so many friends that have great ideas that for one reason or another were passed up for, the, for this particular character. Either someone else was using it or whatever. And I want to create a Kickstarter and have a big-ass book called Rejected. And it's just a standard name of publishing, and it's the greatest comic stories you thought you'd never tell. And like my son, my, my Batman, my, my little son, I have some Batman stories, stuff like that. So I said, come up with a name of a character and see if, it's, if, if there's a name. So he came up, he created a character called Nightflyer. And that, that, there's no character called Nightflyer. And um, so you'll know it's Batman stories, like over oh, Sergeant Rock. I'm like, well, if DC does <coughs> that, why don't I create a new character, Corporal Kilroy? You know, or Captain America. And I have the, the stories that I've heard in bars and things of my friends. And, and Darwin Cook told me one time, he was heartbroken. He said, you know what? I feel a lot of times that we care more about their characters than they do. Because we get passionate, right? we get really passionate about a pitch, and then, oh, yeah, I'm going to pass on that because we have plans for that. She's going to die next year. So I'm like, oh. But I, so I will be approaching all of you guys for this for the end of next year. That it's rejected, and you come up with your own character, and you have whatever your Captain America stories are, come up with somebody else for that or something. And uh, because there are so many fantastic, like you said, what bad stories are there, that there are really great stories that haven't been read. And... I, you could just sit there in awe in the bar when you know the writer starts telling you, gets all excited, and you're like, and you see it, you're like, oh my god, that'd be so great. So uh, look, look forward to that. Hopefully, in a year from now, rejecting the greatest to, comic stories you thought you'd never read. Try to boil down any Grant Morrison story to like a ten-second pitch, <laughs> and you'll have like the dumbest ideas. You know, <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's that's the magic of what. You know, he does, and what really great writers do is you take a really dumb idea, like what seems like a dumb idea, and you do the hell out of it, because that's, that's what comics are. I'll take you back up now. What's a moment you guys are most proud of in your comic creating career?
Like this, check out some of our other shows like Exotic Liability, No Applause, Just the Clap, and Black Falls. We can be found at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for The BACN on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play.